Last week, I stood before a crowd of 300 and read aloud some of the most vulnerable experiences of my life. As I stood there with the words floating before me, all I could feel was the growing lump in my throat and the vibration of my heart beating loudly in my chest. Truthfully, I was scared. Scared of what their reactions would be. Scared I'd look past my podium only to find looks of infuriation staring back at me. But it wasn't. After what felt like forever, the crowd erupted in an applause and standing ovation. This was the first moment I think I actually truly felt seen and heard in Alexandria. So I've really been struggling to understand my own feelings over the last few weeks. On one hand, I feel supported. Another part of me feels angry that it took so much in order for people to just wake up. It's just been so tiring balancing between my personal life and social issues who are all seemingly intertwining these days. Over the last few days, I've come to realize the importance of taking time for myself and putting my mental health first. These last few weeks, I've opened up myself to a lot of people and have accepted the burden of being the Black connection for a large amount of people in my community. I have tons of conversations about all things race. With each conversation, I learned something new and vice versa. A couple nights ago, I took a step back from it all and stopped and noticed with all the chaos, tough conversations, excessive news coverage, and reading, ongoing mentions of racism and police brutality, it was really taking a toll on my family. My son had developed a growing fear of police officers and my husband was working through an internal battle with his own guilt and feeling he should have spoken up sooner or even been bolder. After weeks of hashtagging George Floyd, Ahmaud Arbery, Breonna Taylor, the list continues to grow as we're now finding out that Richard Brooks, a man who was fatally shot by officers after being found sleeping in his car, Richard was running away from the officers at one point, aimed an empty taser gun he had taken from the officers during an altercation. He was shot in the back as he was running away. Two black men were then found hanging from trees, Robert Fuller and Malcolm Harsh. The police was quick to rule both incidents as suicides. In the last couple of weeks, we've also lost two beautiful trans lives, Rhea Milton and Dominique Feltz. Our black trans community needs our attention too, guys. We can't advocate for black lives and eliminate other black sisters and brothers within our community. Say their name, read up on their stories. These are just two But there's an entire gruesome history of violence that has been unleashed on this part of our community. And we cannot move forward unless we are reaching back and taking them along with us. I still remain in a constant fear of anger, 
deepening sadness and defeat. I want to feel hopeful and every now and then I do. But then I walk into the local gas station and am called a stupid black cunt. And I'm reminded all over again that we are both so close yet so far away. Today I woke up and I felt empty. The headlines again ran through my mind and I remembered it all before I had a second to breathe in a new day. It's all just been so heavy. It's all just been too much. (laughs) My heart still aches when watching the news and reading papers. It's a heaviness I try to keep in mind that I'm not alone in. And still, despite it all, we have no choice but to always look forward. I have been reluctant to say this out loud because I realize the politics are hella hot around this topic, but we must abolish policing in its current state. We must tear down to make room for a community that is better served and protected. The numbers truly don't lie. We can't continue to pretend that history is not in a constant state of repeating itself. I've spoken to so many friends who are just weighed down by it. And I just want to urge you to continue to keep fighting the good fight. Keep unlearning and learning. Keep having those tough conversations with those family members you know are struggling to understand. In fact, empathize with them. Understand that you may have once been in the same place mentally or have at least had the blessing of an, of being exposed to culture and different interactions with different people of different backgrounds that you never had to learn in the first place. So... In other news, Bachelor Nation. Good evening, everyone. Thank you for being here and being part of this incredible moment in our history and our community. And just being here tonight, you have taken the first and most important step in the journey to affecting change and allyship. By being here tonight, you're choosing to be on the right side of history. My experiences here came at a time when I was struggling to find my identity. My family and I moved here from Tampa, Florida. And if the first thought that popped into your mind when I said that was, but why? That's a great question. And I'm still trying to answer it myself. Being a new resident in Alexandria was a culture shock to say the least. What started out as double takes at a gas station or long, unfriendly stares at the bank quickly became very public, open, and humiliating outbursts that were meant to degrade me, and it worked. On one occasion, I was taking my daughter to Alec Clinic for a checkup. I was on the main lobby floor, loading my baby into the elevator. An elderly couple stood outside the door, and as I held it open with my feet, I leaned over to ask them if I should hold it open they ignored me. I asked again in case they had not heard me. The woman glanced over at me with a look of disgust, then quickly turned her stare back to the wall, ignoring me. 
Just then, I realized what the issue was and stepped back, waiting for the elevator doors to close. As the awkward silence washed over us, a man who was nearby must have witnessed the exchange and came running in. He quickly jammed the button to the closed doors. Panting hard from the dash, he looked over at me and said, I'm so sorry, ma'am. Still catching his breath, he continued, that was just so uncalled for. It's okay, I said, chuckling a bit to make light of the situation. I'm getting used to it. He sighed deeply. That's the problem. You shouldn't have to get used to it. At that moment, I thought about what had just happened and I was sad and a bit ashamed for feeling I had to accommodate others for their ignorance. This was certainly not the first, second, or even third time this had happened, nor would it be the last. The catalyst to my increased fear and anxiety about being part of a new community was when my husband was falsely detained by local officers in front of our home in a classic case of racial profiling. It was the summer of 2016, right around the same time Philando Castillo was murdered in the cities. What to most may have looked like a simple case of mistaken identity to people who look like my husband and myself, it's comparable to a near-death experience. Terror-stricken, he did exactly as he was told and exited the car with his hands up in the air. With a grip on his gun, the officer cautiously moved in closer, yanked his arm down, shoved them behind his back, and handcuffed him. Heart racing violently, my husband did all that he could to keep his composure and calmly asked the officer what was going on. Confident in his arrest, the officer stated that he had violated his probation and was spotted by a fellow officer as he was asked, unsure of what to say. Confident in his arrest, the officer stated that he had violated his probation and was spotted by a fellow officer as he was driving home. Are you sure you have the right guy, my husband asked, unsure of what to say. As he recalled this moment to me later on, he said even as he stood there, scared for his life, he was even more afraid of the possibility that our son was watching all of this from the upstairs windows something no child should ever have to witness. He politely asked if he could be placed in the back of the policeman's car to avoid the stares of our new neighbors who were trickling out of their homes to witness the commotion. You see, this very scenario is every black mother's, wife's, sister's, daughter's greatest fear when it comes to a black man who is leaving his home. While I was blessed because my husband came home to me unscathed for so many today, that was not the outcome. And for me, this fear had now become crippling. A few nights ago, my husband and I were putting our two kids down for bed. As I reached over my six-year-old son with the blanket to tuck him in, he asked me quietly, Mommy, is the police going to come kill me and my daddy? Falling to his knees beside his bed, my eyes welled with tears and overflowed as my heart sank into the pit of my stomach. I stared into his little eyes, desperately searching my mind for the right words to say 
when his dad came over, sat on the side of his bed and said, Hey buddy, as long as you're here with us, you're always safe. Go to sleep. No worries. You're home with your family. This moment with our son was one we knew many little black boys and girls all over our country tonight were experiencing, going to bed with the same inquiries racing through their minds. About two days prior to this exchange, news broke of an unarmed black man in Minneapolis who was brutally murdered by police officers. In a video taken by a witness, we saw three of the men kneeling on the man's body while one of them pressed his knee firmly into the back of the man's neck for nearly nine minutes, capturing the horrific scene as the world watched him take his final breaths. This past February, a black man in Georgia while jogging in broad daylight was killed by two white men who claimed to be carrying out a citizen's arrest, Ahmaud Arbery. Within two days of that breaking news, we lost yet another black soul in Kentucky, this time a woman, Breonna Taylor, who was shot eight times in her sleep when officers dressed in civilian clothing kicked in the door to her home while executing a no-knock warrant. They realized later it was one giant mistake as the person of the officers were actually looking for had already been detained elsewhere. Less than a week later, George Floyd is killed. All this while the black community is being disproportionately affected by COVID-19 and dying by the thousands due to our community's lack of access to proper health care. George Floyd's murder for the black community was the straw that broke the camel's back. Being a black woman in the white homogenous community means I am never not aware of my blackness, what it portrays to those around me. I spend a great deal of time and energy being conscious of what I look like, how I sound, what I wear, what's in my hands, or even how I'm being perceived when I'm around white friends. In the black community, we refer to this as code switching. It's essentially our daily checklist of overcoming black stereotypes that has been assigned to people of color in our society. I even go so far as to monitor my reactions and emotions, always making sure I am never labeled as threatening or angry. What's sad is that I know I have an advantage as a woman because I have seen the even greater lengths my husband has taken to ensure he's never deemed as threatening by his mere presence. Frankly, to be black in America is exhausting. We don't have the privilege of not seeing color because the world rarely misses an opportunity to remind us that our white counterparts certainly do. Even those who seem completely unaware of their own implicit biases and privilege. To not see color is to dismiss the existence of an entire race along with their centuries of pain, oppression, and generational trauma. The fact that my six-year-old son is already aware of his own blackness is validation that the cycle continues and now, more than ever, it is imperative that we break it. 
I can't change the nature of the world around him any more than I can change his beautiful melanin skin. It's a reality I'm forced to radically accept. Regardless of your politics or worldviews, what we can all agree on is that no child should ever feel fearful that they're going to one day be killed simply for existing. The whole concept makes my, makes my heart ache and I'm constantly flip-flopping from outraged to deeply hurt to wishing people could just try to understand. As Americans, it is no longer enough to just sit by and hope things will get better. As a wife and mother of black men, I urge you to challenge yourself to imagine what it would be like to be black in a world that will feverishly look for any excuse to justify why a black man and sometimes a woman or child just had to die. Time and time again, as people go unpunished for these evil, savage acts, we're reminded that we live in a nation that sees us as disposable. Whether you're inclined to believe it or not, the Black community is under attack. We're fighting a war that was waged 400 years ago when our ancestors were kidnapped from their lands, stripped, shaved, and shackled like animals on ships. Can you imagine? Men, women, children alike were starved for weeks, barely surviving the dangerous voyage into a foreign world. Can you imagine? Literally tagged and branded niggers, a term that was meant to rid them of their identity. They were propped up on a podium only to be sold to the highest bidder. Can you imagine? Their value wasn't based on their intelligence or what they'd accomplished. Like cattle, it was based on how strong they were physically, whether or not they were capable of producing children or could handle hard labor. One day, you're an individual, and the next, you're just part of the livestock. Slaves were forbidden to keep their own names, their own cultures, their own languages their humanity. Can you imagine? Today with our modern comforts, freedom and independence, it's easy to dismiss a world we feel so long detached from. We do ourselves a disservice in failing to see the various moving parts and complexities that have systemically upheld and redefined what human bondage looks like in our country. Like a virus, It continues to permeate and exist within every orifice of our society. It exists in our justice system, entertainment, politics, and even within our schools. As a collective, my community has had enough. We just cannot continue to deny what is right in front of us. Allyship is our only way forward. All lives cannot matter if black lives don't matter. As people, we have a fundamental right to moving the needle forward and ending the trauma of millions of people across the globe. This time, it's personal. This time, 
You don't have to be of color to relate to the human suffering that is taking place all around us. We have to acknowledge the hate and the violence that's unleashed on the black race. We have to find a way to get there, not only for us and not only for our children, but for the future of all mankind. So guys, Bachelor Nation decided to finally enter the 21st century and they have announced their first black male bachelor. Matt James? Yeah. So, okay. Matt James is Tyler Cameron's bestie and Tyler Cameron is the runner-up, so like guy number two from Hannah Brown's season. And Tyler Cameron just since then have been really popular. He's had a lot of, you know, uh, a lot of things come his way in terms of like, you know, opportunities and the people he's been around, the connections he's made, all good things. And so of course he's kind of taken his buddy along for the ride who it seems to be more like his like brother than just his buddy. You can tell that they really have, you know, a great friendship and they've been doing the quarantine life together. They've got a whole TikTok like, you know, entity together. Like they are seriously bromancing it up. So but what I did think was weird about it was that they chose a contestant who was originally part of Claire Crawley's men who were casted for her season that actually ended up getting shut down early due to COVID, of course. So I just thought it was weird that they chose this guy instead of actually choosing, I don't know, Mike Johnson, who we all know, who already has history on the show itself and who people who follow the show are pretty attached to it it just continues to make me wonder like what are they not telling us what's the sketchiness behind that what's the big issue behind Mike Johnson and his not being right to be the first black male lead it's it's annoying actually I just feel like as a fan we deserve to know So, if you also hadn't heard, NeNe Leakes did some interview and recently had the gall to compare herself to George Floyd. And she was doing this when she was talking about her conflicts with her castmates. I don't even understand what she was thinking why she would even think that this is an appropriate comment to say a realistic correlation to even draw together it's just ridiculous and I I can't spend any more time on that it's just I I had I just don't understand I don't understand like can we just trade her and Candace Owen now like are we allowed to do that because at this point it's just really not working out for us in the black community like we just we just ain't we ain't vibing these days but anyways 
If you also heard, um, Amanda Seals is quitting the real, and she basically said that she only had a six month contract, which that, that just six months, really? Like, why? Um, anyways, I just assumed that contracts were at least a year, maybe two, you know, but I don't know the entertainment world like that, so maybe this is the norm. But she just joined the ladies six months ago and she's decided not to move forward. And her reasoning for doing this is because she feels like the network wasn't really protecting her. They weren't really having her back. They didn't really, you know, give her the freedom that she needed to really speak to people the way she wanted to. And I'm confused, actually, because when when Amanda did get casted, I thought it was a great fit. I did. I thought that if this is the direction they're going to go, then finally they're being bold. They're standing out. But for them to, for this to actually end and her to choose not to be part of it, it makes me wonder what's really going on behind the scenes at The Real. You know, I lo- I've loved the show. I have been watching since... I was bedridden and it was their, I believe it was just like their sneak sneak peek type of season and they weren't really picked up yet and it was just a very comfortable show to watch and I always enjoyed it. I really loved it when Tamar was on that on there because I felt like she just brought something different to the cast. Um, and something that uh, frankly has been missing since she's been there and I I really wasn't thinking that Amanda was going to replace that kind of energy I just thought you know she was going to be a new type of energy that could be just as valuable and I thought she was so I think the fact that it didn't work out it makes me question you know why that was but then again it could have just been a business deal gone wrong or that she just felt like she was needed in other places and could serve better in other places. And I think that's actually a commendable choice to make. So, this morning I decided to speak on something publicly that I have actually avoided speaking on publicly simply because I am connected to so many people in the Christian church world. You know, my father was a deacon turned pastor. So now, you know, that is obviously my greatest connection. And on top of that, I pretty much grew up as a Baptist Christian. Our church life was really, really big. And so I came across this lovely little post and it just definitely just livened up something in me and I figured why the hell not so it starts white Christianity suffers from a bad case of Disney princess theology as each individual reads reads scripture they see themselves as the princess in every story they are Esther, never Exorus, or Hammond. They are Peter, but never Judas. They are woman anointing Jesus, never the Pharisees. They are the Jews escaping slavery, never Egypt. 
for citizens of the most powerful country in the world who enslaved both native and black people to see itself as Israel and not Egypt when studying scripture is a perfect example of Disney princess theology. And it means that as people in power, they have no lens for locating themselves rightly in scripture or society. And it has made them blind and utterly ill-equipped to engage issues of power and injustice. It is some very weak Bible work. And y'all, I agreed and I had to bless them with a rant. So, okay, y'all. So I've avoided talking about this one because Lord knows I am acutely aware of where I currently live, the army of white saviors around me, and the people I grew up with all who make up a large percentage of my friends and followers here. But at the risk of pissing many people off, here we go. Unapologetically unapologetic living, (laughs) y'all. See, what most people don't know about me, at least those of you who didn't grow up with me, who are well aware of what I'm referring to, is that I accepted Jesus as my personal savior when I was 15. It's a moment I'll never forget because it was the day I decided to separate myself from religion and commit to my spiritual relationship with God. I realized the performative nature of those who claim to be Christians. I even recognized it in myself. Truthfully, As a child, Christianity was just my ticket to gaining the ultimate approval and love from my parents. As they grew stronger in their faith, so did our activities and presence as a family at church. I wanted to impress them and make them proud so bad, and they knew it. And two years later, after being saved, the perfect image of the church that I'd grown attached to was shattered. We'd been part of the same one most of my life and they all became extended family. Being the daughter of a deacon turned pastor, the church was as natural to us as breathing. There's a funny Haitian American saying, l'école, l'église, la caille. Translation, school, church, home. Meaning, this was your life until that fateful day you got to strike out on your own and live your life according to you. When it was all taken away, so was the veil that somehow covered the humans I had put up on this pedestal and proclaimed godly to the point of perfection. The imperfection that I now saw clear as day made me question everything. I questioned the idea of the church. I questioned my parents, whose court, who of course could never be wrong, and I questioned myself. When life began to happen, I felt lost, like my identity had been stolen and I couldn't imagine a world without my routine. Life flowed into my early 20s and so much had happened to me, I shut out the world and retreated inward. I had been sick 
suffered multiple miscarriages, and just felt broken. One evening, I locked myself in my bedroom and I had it out with God, literally. I was angry. I felt damaged and I didn't understand why. For hours, I furiously wrote in my journal and cried uncontrollably. Tired and through sore eyes, I stared out the window into the darkness when the words of Cece Winans, For Love Alone, started playing through my head. It was a gospel song that had resonated with me when I was 15 and just beginning to really understand the difference between being religious and spiritual. Grabbing my laptop, I quickly got onto YouTube, typed the, title, typed the song title in. While listening to the lyrics, I smiled, I sang, I danced and worshiped right there in the safety of my first apartment. I had never experienced this wholeness before. For love alone, I live my life. And from this moment on, I vow to never lose sight. If I ever doubt the reason why I'm here, I'll start questioning my fears and know it's for love alone. I must have listened to it 50 times that evening and a million times since. It's become my life's anthem and the anchor to my true self. What I gained that evening was my spirituality and my unwavering connection to God. In my darkest moments, he preserved my life and reminded me what it's all about and what it's always been about for me, love. I no longer refer to myself as anything but a woman who knows love because of the love God has shown me and it had nothing to do with the labels or that building or competing to see who was more who appears more godly i'm a flawed human being and because i removed myself from those expectations i've come to know the real me that needed no validation i've been to church and churches since but it's no longer something i feel obligated to be part of I despise the pressures of being picked apart and feeling like you must uphold a certain way of life to fit in with these people. I hate when my real life problems and experiences are dismissed into this whirlwind of toxic positivity and blind faith that allows people to sit in their delusions, to sit in their disillusions and complacency. It stops being about my soul, but rather just living up to other standards in fear of being seen as unchristian or worse, being shunned from the people you have allowed into your heart. So understand, it's nothing personal when I turn down your billionth invitation to church. Dude, it's honestly just not for me. I've had my fair share of awful experiences to know that to know that world isn't good for my mental or my spirit, which I will protect at all cost. I'm so grateful for the unique Haitian church experience I had growing up because it was and is incomparable to any other. Church in the Haitian world is a whole party, y'all. Full band and everything. We don't sit and we don't sit still and hum. It has shaped so much of who I am and has kept me connected to my Haitian family. 
it brought me some of my best friendships that still exist today because of the life we all shared as being the weird Haitian kids growing up in a tiny, nosy Haitian community smack dab in the middle of an American world. I was a youth ministries leader along with my friends. We even had a little Christian girl group called Heavenly Stars, y'all. Yeah, we were about that life. It's funny because people here in Alexandria think that I'm just another lost soul who needs saving, not knowing that after an entire childhood of memorizing and reciting scripture competitively like sport, I could probably run circles around you in biblical trivia, like down to a science. Just saying. And to those of you who are still clutching your pearls, chill boo, I swear I'm not dancing naked under a full moon or whipping up potions in my kitchen. My spiritual life just simply isn't any of your business. Trust, Joe's good. Okay, as you were for love alone. That made me feel so good to get out because it is something that I personally do not like speaking on because I know that I'm always going to be misconstrued the wrong way, but I think this post just gave me the perfect end and opportunity to really just speak about how I feel about spirituality in church and all of it just from my personal perspective and I know that I've lost a lot of friendships and opportunities here in Alexandria because I have purposely kept myself out of those circles and it sucks it sucks to be misunderstood and to not be seen as who you really are But at the end of the day, and in the famous words of Hannah B, Jesus still loves me. And that's it for me today. Catch you guys on the flip side. Enjoy your weekend. Happy Juneteenth to my brothers and sisters out there who are celebrating this weekend. Definitely continue to follow my pages on Facebook as well as on Instagram. Send me emails at anxiousmepodcast at gmail.com. And don't forget, y'all, we are on Patreon at Girl Clout Media, which of course is the umbrella um, under which you should have asked me first podcast and this podcast unapologetically anxious me is under it is a collaboration and team effort between me and my fabulous friend heather hopley who has really brought me into this world and really have taught me so much and i'm continuing to learn so much and i've gotten to really find my happy place being right here with you guys so i appreciate your love and your listening Bye.